0: Our scripture reading this morning will be from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be reading uh, verses 11 through 16. If you're using one of the uh, uh, Bibles in the back, it's on page 977, 977. This verse, these, these, pa- these, this, these verses, this passage talks about the uh, body of Christ uh, as in the local church, the universal church. As in Heritage Baptist Church, that's what this uh, verse is about. This is what Jonathan is going, Pastor Jonathan is going to be preaching on. It's appropriate because I would like to take a brief moment uh, and thank you all for your prayers and uh, your love, your well wishes. Facebook posts, which Hope had to show me because I'm not on Facebook, um, and your visits. It, it was, it was uh, overwhelming. It's, it's You guys showed me Christ. You did what we're going to read we were unified. You were unified. It was, it was, uh, it was embarrassing, actually. <laughs> and it's a strange feeling for someone who's been blessed with health and blessed from family tragedy to be on the receiving end of it. It was, it was definitely awkward, but it was very loving. And uh, thank you so much. And there was enough enjoyment in it that I think every few months I will fake a heart attack from here on out. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> Oh, man, I'm in trouble now.
1: I want to I want to symbolize the love of this congregation for Eric and his family. Humanly speaking, he came close to the borders of death, but the Lord kept him with us. So I want to I want to embrace you publicly, and this represents the love of the whole church for you.
0: (laughs) Thank you. you. you.
1: you. you.
0: you you. I was ready to go. Pastor Keith he, he he had some words the other day and um and it's true. You don't you think you think it's a heart attack and you go, Who knows what a heart attack feels like until you've had one and survived? Well now I know, but you, you I was gone. I was I was I was I was gone and I had peace. So our faith is real. Our faith is real. Now please let's turn our attention to the word of God. Ephesians chapter four, verse eleven through sixteen. In deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May the Lord bless the reading and now the preaching of his word.
1: it is a privilege to be back here in the pulpit and preaching. I've loved this book of Ephesians and really looking forward to unpacking and unfolding for you by God's grace this uh, rich text uh, in God's word. It breaks at an interesting place in that we're picking it up right in verse 13 with the word until, but the really between 11 and 16 there's so much content that is very helpful For us to break it there. So, we have a lot to talk about. So, let's go ahead and pray and uh, ask for God's help as we get in. Father, thank you again for your word. We are grateful for it. And we pray that your word would have that transformative effect in our life. And uh, we don't ever want to take it for granted that we'll just, you know, walk out of here and be affected and transformed. There's just so many things that need to happen. Your spirit needs to come, you need to move and shape our hearts and to. Uh, give us an, uh, a willingness to even receive this word, a humility, a posture of humility and of grace, and then a hunger for your word, and then a conviction that you would bring all these things into play right now. So we pray against Satan in all of his ways, who would seek to discourage or, or, or distract us or give us anxious thoughts when we should be focusing on the word. Would you remove that influence and would, would you come now with your spirit and fill this room and this space and this time uh, in a way that actually makes a difference for us long term, for our church, for our families, our marriages, our kids. Lord, would you just do that for us? We need you, we love you, and we are grateful for this privilege. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is What is the church? Charles de Gaulle, who was the 18th president of France in the 50s and 60s, had this to say. He said, the church is the only place where someone speaks to me and I don't have to answer back. Others actually have a more negative approach to church when you think about the question, what is church? A more negative perspective. I remember hearing uh, one time about a church sign that read, why face depression alone? Come to church. Well, what do you think? When you think of a church, what is it? For some, the church seems to be a totally unnecessary, even rather unfortunate outcome of the ministry of Jesus. So some people would say, you know, it's just kind of a poor attempt at kind of um, continuing on a Jesus franchise. You know, Jesus set up his ministry on the earth, and he did great things, and he was a teacher that many people followed, and then he died and was resurrected, and Went to heaven and then all of his followers just decided they wanted to sort of carry on the Jesus franchise. And got together in little huddles and tried to emulate what Jesus did on the earth. A cynic would be inclined to think that maybe that's exactly what's going on with the church today. You know, Jesus is this great teacher and he did really good things. But now followers of Jesus have degenerated uh, into marketing schemes. Bracelets and t-shirts and hats and bumper stickers, all in honor of their prophet and teacher, Jesus. I've certainly heard a whole host of people myself uh, who think like this. They say things like, well, Jesus Christ is great, but it's Christianity that I have a problem with. I've heard that line many times, and I'm sure you have as well. Certainly in our secular and individualistic culture, we are tempted to think more poorly of the church than other Christians around the world. I think just taking a few trips around the world overseas, you really see that. You see that there's a real negative, sort of cynical perspective on the church in America. And you go to other countries and it's like their lifeblood. It's everything to them. And nobody's talking cynically about it. It's either hostile persecution against the church or, or it's just total commitment and love and adoration for it. But it's nothing cynical. Nobody's being cynical. But here in America... Oh, people are very cynical about the church. Let's make fun of the church. Let's mock the church and have a good time doing so. Well, what else would you say the church is? In the uh, novel, A Month of Sundays, Tom Marshfield reflects on his experience of the church as a youth. He says this, he said, Churches produced in me the same relation to God that billboards did for Coca-Cola. They promoted thirst without quenching it. And yet for all this expression of disappointment, Christians have always said that the church was vital to what God is doing in the world. And we believe it, otherwise we wouldn't be here. It's vital not only to what God is doing in the world, but what God is doing in our own hearts and lives. And we sense and we have a deep need inside that we need this place, that we need the church, we feel that. So what exactly is the church and what is the church to be like? Well, to answer those questions, we're going to continue our series through the book of Ephesians. And this morning we're in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. And here Paul is concerned with how we are to live out the unity that Pastor Mark has preached about that we have in Christ. And how we are to take the sort of every member who's been given a gift and work that out into a spiritual maturity. Now, and I want to begin this morning with the following assertion. And I want you to listen closely to this because it really serves as the essence of what I think is happening in this passage and really the point of the, of the text is. And here's the assertion. You and I will not mature as Christians without significant involvement in both the ministry and the life-on-life community of the local church. Two things, the ministry that's applying your gift and working in the church, and the life-on-life, eyeball-to-eyeball, shoulder-to-shoulder community of the local church. Now, let me clarify how I'm using those terms. By, by life, by ministry, I mean involvement in what we would call the organization of the church. That is, the structure of the church, the planning, the weekly worship of the church, the events that we do, the the coordination of nursery and children children's ministry and teachers and and audiovisual and whatever just just the organization, all of that Sunday ministry. That's the ministry by life on life. I'm I'm not referring to the organization. I'm not referring to Sunday morning or worship and ministry, but rather the organism of the church, the life, the the. People, the relationships that you're building, the face to face contact. And what I'm saying is that based on the text before us, Christians, if we are to grow, our growth as Christians is contingent upon a meaningful involvement in both the ministry and life on life community of the local church. I mean, simply attending church on a weekly basis and having your name on the membership role is not what Paul has in mind here. Paul is after maturity. The whole thrust of these verses is that Paul desires the church to grow in maturity. So in verse 14, he uses the word children and he compares that notice in verse 13 to a mature man. And those are juxtaposed for a reason, children and a mature man. Paul wants the church to grow up and to become more like Christ and to reach full maturity. Now, just to review, if you remember back in verses 1 through 6, Paul called us to pursue unity in the bond of peace. And then he gave us several characteristics of what that unity would look like in the text. Then in verses 7 through 12, Paul told us that each believer has been given a gift by Christ and that these gifts have been distributed to the church so that the body will grow. And today we come to verses 13 through 16 where we'll see that the purpose of ministry is maturity. A healthy church is marked by spiritual maturity, and that's the theme of this text. Now, I have three things that I want to share with you this morning. I want you to see, all right? The goal of maturity, the purpose of maturity, and the way of maturity. And I think all three of those things we can see here in this text. So let's look first at the goal of maturity, verse 13. The goal of maturity is Christ-likeness, verse 13. Obviously, Christ is the ultimate picture of maturity. Mature manhood is measured by the stature, as Paul says, of the fullness of Christ. Jesus is the quintessential example, not only of a man, but of just a human being, of just a mature human being. So the goal for us is, has always been for us to be like Jesus. And then Paul lists three characteristics of that maturity in verse 13. He says, number one, that we would all reach unity in our understanding. Talks about unity of the faith. Two, that we would know Christ, that we would know the Son of God. Do you see that? And the third thing, that we would become like Christ, that we would reach to the measure of the fullness of Christ. That is that we would become like him. So those three things. First is reaching unity in our understanding. Paul uses the language unity of faith. And by that, Paul is not sort of meaning here that we would all reach unity of faith. That means like that we would all be saved or converted. I mean, that's the sort of, that's the entry point. But he's saying more than that. He's saying the unity of faith here is that body of truth that Jude 3 says that was once for all delivered to the saints. It is that body of truth that this word of God that we have come to cherish and know and love and that we would come to a unity of of in our understanding of what this book teaches, a unity of faith, that we would understand this truth of God's Word. Do you know God's Word? No, I ask that question because we're seeking to know God's Word together. Do you know God's Word? Because that's the goal, that we would all come to an ever-increasing unity as to what this book teaches. And that's the first characteristic that we see of maturity here. The second is that we would come to a knowledge of the Son of God. This is to know Jesus. And and I don't mean just facts about Jesus, to really know Him. So if unity is how we relate to each other, then knowledge is how we relate to Him. And what we want to know is Christ personally, not just things about Him. We are to increase in our understanding of Him, and we are to increase in our enjoyment of Him. And so that's why spiritual gifts have been given to the church so that we will grow and deepen and expand and increase in our knowledge of Christ. The goal here, and it's so helpful to think about this sometimes, is that we are trying to know a man, that there is a man, a real man in heaven right now, and his name is Jesus Christ. And our goal is to know him, not just read about him, not just know facts about him, we can teach classes and courses on Christology and unpack and unfold the riches and the wisdom and the glories of Jesus. And that's great and helpful. But what we are doing is trying to know him. And that's why we pray and we spend time in his presence because we're crying out, God, we want to know you. Jesus, we want to know you personally. Is having a personal relationship with Christ. And here's what this text is teaching. Don't, don't miss this. That you cannot know Christ if you are disconnected from his church. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's impossible to be a Christian. I think you can be a Christian and be disconnected from the church. You'll be a very weak and miserable and poor Christian. But I think you can be a Christian. What I'm saying, though, is that there is something about Jesus that you can only learn in the context of the local church. When I see Christ working through another brother or sister in the church, I learn something about Jesus. When we see a brother or sister lose a child in death or a tragic accident or something, we watch them walk through that, we learn something about Jesus. If you're just at home and if you're living a Lone Ranger Christian life, you will not get those things. You will not learn those things about Christ. There is something that you can only learn about Jesus in the context of the family. When, when you see dad relating to one of the children, the other child is observing how dad is relating to them. And we learn things about dad. Ooh, why was dad so upset there? I better not do that. Or Dad is very happy. He loves me. Look at his kindness. He's so eager to see me. He's excited. So I can expect that when I come in, dad's going to be excited to see me. We learn things when we see Jesus through the eyes of the church. So those are the first two marks of maturity in verse 13. A unity of faith, a deepening knowledge of Jesus. The third thing in verse 13 is that the church is becoming like Christ. Paul says that we are to reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now that's a bunch of ofs strung together, but it's very quite simple what he's saying. He's saying that when you first come to Christ, you're you're like a little baby. But eventually, you are supposed to grow up so that you become and resemble Christ. You become more like Christ and resemble Him. And as we grow, we are to measure up to Christ. This is maturation. The point here is that the church, that this is a corporate thing. He says, we, we are to measure up to Christ. We are to become progressively conformed to the perfect image of Jesus in all of His fullness. So this is the goal of maturity, okay? The first point of this message this morning is that the goal of maturity is Christlikeness, And that incorporates a unity around the Word of God, a knowledge of the Son of God, and thirdly, becoming like Jesus. Now, that's the goal of maturity. The second thing here, in verse 14, is the purpose of maturity. Okay, The purpose, if the goal of maturity uh, is, is Christ-likeness, then the purpose of maturity is protection. Verse 14. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The purpose of maturity is protection. It's for your own protection. Protection from false teachers and protection from false doctrine. Immaturity in the church is portrayed by the word children here. It's a term that's used in direct contrast to the word mature man. As I said in verse 13, that's why Paul tells us, no longer be children. Grow up from the sort of adolescent, from the childhood stage. Children, why Why is that? Because children are very vulnerable. Uh, What do they do? What do small children do? They cry a lot. They need a lot of help. They need a lot of guidance. They need a lot of care. They make a mess of things. I walked in yesterday and uh, I didn't know where my son was. I was watching a football game. And when things got quiet, I started thinking, where's the kids? What are they doing? You know, there's that awkward quietness. And so downstairs, he's not down there. can't find him anywhere. It's my youngest. And upstairs, I can't find him anywhere. Well, he's in a room sort of upstairs that's off to the side. And I walk in and he has marker all over his arms, just drawing on his arms and on his pants. He's drawing everywhere. And he's just making a mess. And, uh, and, and that's the point here, is that children are like that. They don't know what's going on. They make a mess. They're very vulnerable people. And the purpose of maturity is protection. Now, what Paul is saying is that we are to imitate children, Jesus says so, in their humility, but we are not to imitate children in their ignorance and instability. And that happens in the church You go to churches and you think, man, there's a lot of instability here. A lot of immaturity here. A.T. Lincoln had this to say. He said, immaturity is evidenced in instability, lack of direction, doctrinal wavering, and susceptibility to manipulation and error. See, if people are not rooted doctrinally, if they're not rooted in the word of God, what happens is, is they're just tossed around. So whatever new thing comes out that sort of the church is advocating or that somebody is thinking about, man, they're jumping on that bandwagon and going with it because that's the cool thing that's in vogue. And they're just tossed around. Paul's language is very vivid here. The picture is like a tiny boat that's on a storm-tossed sea and it's being tossed around by the wind and waves. The phrase here, every wind of doctrine, think about this, is contrasted with the phrase, the unity of faith. So on the one hand, you have This being tossed around with every wind of doctrine. The other thing, you have a unity, a rootedness in the faith in verse 13. In other words, the church is to be filled with people who are rooted and grounded in the faith. Not tossed around by every new teaching that comes along. But at the heart of immaturity is theological, a lack of theological discernment. You know, if you give a quiz and you say, what are the basic rudiments of biblical scriptural teaching? Could you pass that? Do you have theological discernment? Who is God? What is sin? Who is man? What has God called us to do? What is the gospel? Can you explain the essence of the gospel in 60 seconds? What did Christ come to do? What, what was happening on the cross? Basic theological. What is the church? What is it for? What has God called us to do? What is our purpose uh, as the church? What is the message of the Bible? But these are basic questions, and we must know these things. And notice how people fall prey to false teaching. Three things. He says, by cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Cunning is that idea of dishonest gain. It's, it's taking advantage of somebody to gain something from them in a deceitful way. Craftiness is the ability to make error look like truth. You've seen that before? Oh, this is really smooth. He's a real smooth talker, and he can take something that's just terrible, and make it look so nice. Very satanic. And deceitful schemes is a method or plan to lead people astray. Listen, not every person who stands up with a Bible to speak for God should be trusted. And that sounds like a really obvious point, but people miss that. Guy gets up, he starts talking about the Word of God, he's on TV or whatever, and you start listening to him, you get stuff mailed to your house, and and, and you must have this capacity... And you must learn to discern truth from error. And until you do, you will be very vulnerable to charlatans that will promise you all kinds of things that God does not promise you or create expectations in you that God does not want you to have. And there's a lot of error out there. And as long as you're a child spiritually, you are very vulnerable. And that's why I want to urge you, to take advantage of the things that we offer as a church, to come to Bible study, which is now on Wednesday nights, and to our adult classes on Sunday mornings. and Because you need to be rooted in the Word of God and protected from such danger. That's the purpose of maturity, is protection. And that happens as we're rooted and grounded in the faith. So we've seen the goal of maturity is likeness. The purpose of maturity is protection. And third, the way of maturity is commitment. The way of maturity is commitment. Look at verses 15 and 16. What is God's plan for your growth? We see two things here that imply commitment to the local church. The first is what I would call mutual discipleship. We see that in verse 15. And I'll tell you where I'm getting that term. And the second is every member involvement in verse 16. Okay, 15, mutual discipleship. Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. So there's something happening. There's a dynamic where people are speaking truth to one another in the context of the local church. Churches that speak the truth to one another are churches that have a culture of discipleship. So instead of being tossed around by every wind of doctrine, we are to be speaking the truth to one another. Look up here for a moment. This is not a sort of warm and fuzzy message. This is not a sort of a, a come and and, and we've, we've planned out this message so that you can hear something that you really wanted to hear. No, we're speaking the truth to you. And that's what we do on a weekly basis. We don't spend our weeks as pastors trying to figure out, well, what does the church want to hear and lick our finger and hold it up in the wind and see which way the wind is blowing. No, we just want to be faithful to you as pastors. We want to equip you. We want to teach you about your purpose in life and your role and your responsibility in the local church. And as we do that, as we do that, you are strengthened, you are helped, you are, we speak the truth. And you are to do the same thing for one another and for us as pastors. So you speak truth to us, we speak truth to you, you speak truth to one another. And through all of that, we have a culture of discipleship where we are speaking the truth to one another in love. And we're willing to be bold in truth, but gracious in our tone. And are, are you doing that same thing to members in the, in the church? And notice that we are to do this in love. We care for one another and we long to see Christ formed in each other. What Paul is after here is a loving community, a place where people consistently speak the truth and do so in love. It's to put you before me, your interest above mine, and that is love. There are many people today whose great need is simply to be loved. They're broken, they're tired, they are discouraged. And they need to be loved. Our hearts are burdened by living in a system of conditional love. We have it all over the place. If you're good enough, if you've done the right things, then I'll love you. If you've done what I've said, then I'll show you favor and love and blessing. We can parent that way our own children. But this is not how God loves us. And it's not how we should love others. If you struggle to love others, yes, in this church, then you need a fresh encounter of God's grace and how he has loved you despite your mess and despite your problems and despite how frustrating and annoying you are sometimes a fresh encounter of God's love for you. We are to be a loving community overflowing with affection and commitment to each other. And that kind of love and grace is amazingly winsome in our world to outsiders. And it's a biblical pattern for a healthy church. And that's why the beginning of our mission statement reads, we exist to be a gospel centered community. I love that we prayed about this, and we watched that one-minute video from Ray Ortland, who also says this. He says, Ray Ortland says, A gospel-centered church is marked by a beautiful, humane culture of grace. That kind of church translates its theology into its sociology. The good news of God's grace beautifies how we treat one another. How we treat one another reveals what we really believe about God as opposed to what we say we believe. It is possible to say our church is committed to the grace of God and mean it while that very church, without realizing, becomes a law-controlled, social environment of merciless comparisons and coercive demands. If we are trigger-happy toward one another it proves that we do not yet get it. It's a really good word from Ortland. And those are, those, the, that, that applies to all of our relationships. Life in the home, life in our neighborhood, life at work, life with our husband and wives, life with our parents and children, life between employees and employers. This, in other words, is what grace, God's grace, does. The doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace. And that's the horizontal, on-the-ground impact of the gospel. The gospel is good news that the best thing has happened to the worst people. And when you understand that, it translates itself into patience with one another. Humility toward one another. Gentleness toward one another. Tenderness toward one another. And when we do this, we speak when we do this, we speak the truth in love. And notice what Paul says will happen in verse 15. When this begins to happen, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, we don't have time to unpack that phrase, into him who is the head. But I do want to say quickly that Christ is the head of the church. Which is why we don't need an earthly head over the church. So we don't, we don't sort of answer to a hierarchy over Heritage Baptist Church. Do you know who the hierarchy is over Heritage Baptist Church that we answer to? Not the Southern Baptist Convention. It's Jesus. Jesus is the senior pastor of this church. And and that should make you feel very comfortable. Because that means that your pastors answer directly to Jesus. Not some human pope somewhere. Not some priest somewhere. Not some hierarchy somewhere. Not some board somewhere. But to Jesus himself. And he's an adequate head. And we don't need any other head. And at the end of the day, really the issue is this. The singular test of our maturity is the growing love that we have for Christ and his church. So what have we seen? We've seen that the goal of maturity is Christ likeness, The purpose of maturity is protection. And the way of maturity is commitment. And that commitment involves mutual discipleship. And here's the last element. And I would call every member ministry. We see this in verse 16. It's total involvement, it's throw yourself in involvement. Notice the key words in verse 16 the whole body, every joint, each part working. Think about that. That's all inclusive language. No one is excused. No member of the church gets a pass. This is total involvement, it's 100% participation in the life and ministry of the church. And if a church is going to be built up in love, Paul is saying it's a non negotiable. Everybody has to get involved, every member plays a vital role. The imagery here is something that's organic and living. Paul is saying we are joined and we are held together. Every ligament, there's ligaments that are holding everything in place. Jesus takes these parts, the different parts of the body, and he shapes them, he fits them, and he joins them together. This is biology, this is living, this is organic, this is life. And this is a really excellent reminder that if we're brought together as distinct parts, think about this, that the Christian life is never an individual endeavor. Right. Christianity is never about me. It's about Christ. It's about his church. And it's about the church's mission to the world. But it's never about me. There's a corporate reality, reality to the Christian faith. When you become a Christian, you do not simply receive a gift. You became a gift. For others. And and God has especially shaped and prepared you for a specific body. You say, well, what if I move from here? Well, then he'll fashion you and shape you for another body. But for now, he's shaped you and fashioned you for this body. And I don't mean just the universal church. I mean the local church. Because local churches are an expression of God's universal church. And he's shaped you and prepared you for this body. You have a role to play here. Everybody has a part. And you might say, well, you know, but my part seems so insignificant and so small. But Paul says, remember in First Corinthians 12, that the more unseemly parts end up being some of the most important parts. You may seem to have a very small role, but your part is very important. Few people, listen, few people will be publicly acknowledged or recognized for their gift. Very few people will be honored for their gift. But you know, that doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter if you're honored for that or not. What Jesus wants you to do is consistently serve and use your gifts in a way that honors him. And if you do that, you're faithful to God and God is pleased. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I just want to say to you that being a part of a church is a wonderful thing. It really is. And it's a tremendous thing to see hundreds, hundreds of imperfect, fallen, broken, busted up sinners working together to serve Jesus and give their lives for the sake of other people. It's, amazing. it's an amazing thing that God has called us to in the church. And I want to remind you as a non-Christian. That, that the Bible says that we all find ourselves in a sinful and separated condition from God. But God has laid our sin on Christ. And God has called us to turn from ourselves. And to put our trust in Christ for forgiveness. And as you do that you will find this to be a gateway to a whole new life. Which includes a whole new community of people that is incredibly encouraging and healing and strengthening. And I encourage you, look, that don't try to join a church just because it sounds like a fun thing to do. Give your life to Jesus. Have your sins forgiven and then join that church and you will find massive healing and community and life. It's just so groundbreaking for people that first give their lives to Christ, to throw yourself into the church. If you're on the outside of the church, if you're a Christian, you're a weak Christian, but you're just sort of on the outside playing, you're kind of aloof. Look, you will not have that vibrancy about your spiritual life until you throw yourself in. Throwing yourself in is where God begins to move and shape you. And that's what you need. And members, when we do that for one another, we love one another. What does it say in verse 16? It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. In love. So we've looked at all these important phrases here in these verses. Now let me get really practical as we close. Because it's very easy to read this text and to only think about Sunday morning. I bet most of you, that's all you've been thinking about this morning as I'm preaching. Applying my gift, applying my time, applying my resources, plugging in right here, Sunday morning, what happens? And that's a fine application, so we think about Sunday production and everything that needs to happen for this 3 hour space of time. Are all the slots filled? Are all the kids and classes and teachers and security personnel accounted for? And we ask, what do we need to resources wise to pull that off? And that's a good question. And it's one that has obvious implications from this text. We need people to serve. But hear me. Don't let that be your only application to this text. That, that, I would say, is a very low standard. That's bare minimum. There's so much more at stake here than just Sunday morning. And here's how I want to apply this text to our church right now. One of the things that we're trying to beef up around here is the 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 importance and in, in your understanding in your mind of gospel community groups. Because we believe that unless you get shoulder to shoulder with other Christians in smaller groups and begin to open your life with other Christians, your spiritual growth will be stunted. It it just will. I mean, it's way too easy to just show up on Sunday morning, test yourself, test yourself. It's way too easy to show up on Sunday morning, fulfill your ministry responsibility, go home, check out the rest of the week and come back next Sunday, right? I came, I did my thing, I pitched in, I did my whatever ministry, I went home, I didn't talk with anybody else in the church all week. I just gave myself to my family and my kids and my work and my job and then I come back next Sunday and do it again, And I'm just saying that routine of Sunday to Sunday life is not healthy as a Christian. That we are meant for so much more than that. You're not meant to live on a Sunday by Sunday basis. You can't do that. You will die. You will wilt on the vine if you live that way. Now, I know that most of you understand that sort of implicitly. And then what happens in your life is you call each other throughout the week. And hey, you want to come over and hang out. And so naturally, we kind of understand that we can't do this. But what we're doing as a church is saying, okay, so if you're lazy and you're not calling other Christians, and if that's not sort of an impulse in you, we want to sort of push you there and kind of help you do that by creating gospel community groups and saying, get in one, because these people will help you do that. And that's the purpose of these groups. So this is, this, the, the, what the Bible does not have in mind for us is sort of just showing up once a week to worship God. I mean, that's not how the early church lived what does Acts 2 says? It says, "Day by day, they attended the temple together and they ate in each other's homes. Day by day, they shared everything in common. They shared all their possessions. Day by day, they worshiped. That's vital Christianity. And to the degree that we have bought into the Western American individualistic idea of once- a week Christianity, we are hurting ourselves. We're hurting ourselves. So in order to deal with that problem, we've created gospel community groups to help you live your life more faithfully as a Christian. Somebody says, well, I don't see gospel community groups in the Bible. I don't care. I don't care if you see it in the Bible. The point is, we've got to create structures for you to get some help on a weekly basis. You don't need a text that says, is gospel community groups in the Bible? First opinions, two, three. That doesn't matter. What matters is your health. Your vitality. So stop making excuses about I don't see it in the Bible. I'll tell you what I see in the Bible one anothering each other, serving one another, calling each other out, exhorting one another, while while it's still called today, getting help so that we're not hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. If you can do that on your own, if you can do that on a Sunday by Sunday basis, you're really arrogant. If you think you can just show up once a week on Sunday and walk your Christian life out with integrity. I'm just telling you, you're arrogant. You're prideful. You say, that's really hard, Jonathan. It is hard. It's very hard. It's hard because we need it. And I'm telling you, I need it as a pastor. I need it. I cannot, I can't even function as a pastor unless I have people in my life. And it's very hard as a pastor, especially because what's happening is you're in a position of leadership and people are looking to you for help. But I need people, we need people to call us out to help us to say, man, are you, is my pastor walking with Jesus? Are you? Are you reading? Am I reading the Bible? Am I praying? Am I seeking God? And I need somebody more than just my wife asking me that question and my fellow pastors. Gospel community groups are crucial so the reason why we emphasize these groups okay, is that we want to urge all of you to participate in them on a weekly basis is that they provide a context where we can care for one another in a way that we simply cannot do on Sunday morning. Have you cared for anybody deeply this morning? I'm serious. Did you plan to care for anybody deeply this morning? I doubt it. For most of you, I doubt it. And it's not because you're a bad person. It's just because this isn't the right context for that. It's a great context to pray for somebody quickly, to hug them, say, I love you. Good to see you again, brother. Thankful for you. But see, we know inside implicitly this isn't the right context for deep, meaningful sort of life-on-life help. So We need to stop fooling ourselves. We need something more. Let me be very clear here. Gospel communities is not something we came up with to sort of find a way to take one more night of your week and give you some church stuff to do. That's not the idea. We stress gospel community because we want to provide a context where the word of God gets lived out patiently, lovingly, intimately with other Christians, which is so vital. And here's the encouraging news. If you're in a gospel community, you, you'll, you'll testify to the truthfulness of this, is that your gospel community group on its worst day, okay, with all of its messes, I recognize there's a lot of mess there, With all of its messes, on the worst day, your gospel community group is a total anomaly to this world. Nobody lives like that in the world. Think about it. A group of people that are not full of cynicism and perversity and filthy humor all the time, but they're just trying to love each other. On your worst day as a group, that utterly stands out in this world as a shining light. And you get a chance to be a part of that. So here's what I want to do. As we close, I want to give you a few exhortations to about how you can get more involved in a gospel community if you're, and if you're struggling with yours, okay, how you can make it better. And the number one thing that I want to say to you is this. The number one thing of, of how you can make your group better is this. Just be there when they meet. Be there. Just show up. You know, it's almost embarrassing as a pastor how many people will come to us and say things like, you know, I'm just not sensing any community around here. Not feeling any sense of community. Uh, I feel disconnected from the church. And, and I, don't, I don't know what's happened. And I'm trying to get reinvigorated. And, and, and we at, you ask him a question like, well, are you in a gospel community? No. Well, I mean, I am technically, but are you going? Well, not really. Well, do you go to the prayer meetings? Not really. Well, I, honestly, I'm just being honest. I don't know how to help that person. Because as shepherds, we can do is provide the grass and then walk the sheep out to the grass and ask them to eat. But if they won't eat, what can we do? So the first step is just go. The second is be thoughtful. Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And I love that language. Let's consider, consider. That means think about that means plan, pre-plan, have an idea, have an agenda in mind. When you're driving to church on Sunday morning and when you're going to your gospel community, have an agenda for who you want to talk to and what you want to talk to them about and how you can encourage them. Don't have an agenda to come and get. Have an agenda to come and give. That will totally transform your group. Consider that. Instead of just plopping down on the couch and and. Come with a plan. How can I encourage these people tonight? You say, you know, I know so-and-so is depressed. So-and-so, they have a difficult marriage. It's obvious. You know, I have a verse for them that I want to share. I have a book that I think someone can profit from. And think about this. If all 10 to 20 people would come to their groups considering how to stir one another up, that place would be on fire at the end of the night. And you, It's so encouraging when you get people saying, man, thanks so much for giving me that, but I got something for you. And you, you're going back and forth and you're just loving each other and giving so much good to each other. So don't just go to the next meeting, text throughout the week, drop by, give a phone call, include others in your trips to the park. If you're going out to the restaurant with your family, invite somebody else with you in your community group. Ask them to come with you. Just be involved in the life of other people. Number three, this is another very practical thing, move on. Maybe you need a different group. Just Leave. Leave the group, and and that sounds bad, but I don't mean it that way. I mean you should feel the freedom to move on because if your group does not fit the schedule that you are in in life, it doesn't mean it's a bad group. It just means it doesn't fit for you. So don't hang out there forever, never attending because your group meets at a time you can't. Just find another group somewhere. If your group, if you can't meet on Tuesday, find a group that meets on Thursday or Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening. And there's a board back there, by the way, I don't know if you've seen this, but on the way out, if you take a left right there at the book nook, as soon as you go in that little corridor, you'll see all the gospel community groups that we have, the times they meet, who's leading them, their email, their phone number. Just contact one of those groups and say, hey, I need to find a new group, can, can I be a part of your group? And uh, it, you'll see that there. Number four, uh, this is really important, be real, Be genuine. The the worst thing are groups where groups where people are together and everyone is kind of playing Christianity. And we're all prone to that. Look, I mean we all do that kind of stuff. You know, it's it's just the conversation and we mean well, but it's just what happens. It's hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. How are the kids? You know, what's new? Nothing, same old stuff, different day. How are the kids? Children are a blessing from the Lord. Don't do that. Of course children are a blessing from the Lord. But let's not play like that. How are the kids? They're not doing so hot. You know? I'm worried about my oldest son. I don't think he's a Christian yet. He's 17. He's walking away from Jesus. My kids are not doing well. Can you pray for them? See, there's no transformation where there's no transparency. And we've got to be willing to be transparent. But as soon as someone says, this is the inverse, you know that sin stuff that they talk about on church on Sunday morning? Yeah, I struggle with that. Real sin. I spent way too much money this month. I have a drinking problem. I think I drink too much. I'm not walking closely with God. I haven't read my Bible in months I feel myself slipping away. I don't want to come to church anymore. I've been hiding things from my spouse. I have an addiction. I have significant marriage problems. Real sin. And as soon as groups begin to get there, they're on their way to massive transformation. Because you know what the response is to that? Me too, man. I've been there. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's been two months for me since I've really read the Bible meaningfully. I'm not praying. Man, we need some help, man. Somebody else says, well, man, I'm, I'm walking with Jesus by his grace. I'm reading his word every day. I'll agree to meet with you guys. Let's go for it. Get, but see, that's what happens. You get some help. And when that happens, grace begins to pour in. The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. So if you want to be exalted, you must be Humble. God helps those who humble themselves. God works for those who wait for him. So you act like, if you act like everyone's fine, I'll tell you what will happen. Go to your group, everyone acts like they're fine. What will happen is everyone will leave the group saying, man, I am lonely. No one struggles with the stuff that I do. Yes, they do. Everybody struggles with the stuff you do. They're just not telling you. Open your heart and your life to others and leaders. We have got to model this. We got to model that. Got to have enough integrity and humility to say, "Yeah, man, I've got some issues too. Let's go. Let's go for it. Y'all help me." Number five and the last thing: talk like talk like a missionary, think like a missionary, and pray like a missionary. These groups are set up so that we can be on mission together. It's not just inward. It's not just upward. It's outward. If you go around a circle, okay. Hear me on this. If you can go around the circle in your group and each person says, you know, I don't really have any real contact with non-Christians. And everybody says that. Then the next move for that group is to repent. That's a significant problem. Or if you go around the circle and most of the answers are, I don't have any significant contacts with non-Christians. That's a problem. The next move is for that group to change it. It's not okay for all of us to be living a life that has no contact with non-Christians. So where do we start? Begin to think like missionaries. Pray for social, relational, evangelistic ideas. This is what missionaries on the field are doing. Think about it. When we send out missionaries to the foreign field like HD and JJ in the Horn of Africa, we send them over there. What do they do? They huddle up. They huddle up with five to ten other people, and they begin praying for each other and thinking about how they can minister to people in their city. And they pray for them, and they go around, and they do what they're praying about. And that's how they build churches. And there's no need for another strategy. We simply get together. We pray with each other. We pray for the city. We begin to invest in the city. We help each other. We say, what relationships, brother or sister, are you currently building with non-Christians? How can we encourage you? How can we pray for you? How can we keep you accountable? How can we strengthen you? Should we set something up? Should we set up a schedule? Should we remind you? Should we, how can you remind me? How can you help me? What can we do together to make this happen? And we help each other. So I hope that even though that's challenging, that it motivates you because if you're not in a gospel community, it motivates you to get in one. And if you've become discouraged with one, which all of us have, okay? Okay then just bring new life and vision to it. And, and God can and will use you in that. But here's the thing, just don't be an isolated Christian coming to church once a Sunday. Because that is not a vital way, that is not God's idea for you walking out your Christian life and you need this for your growth. So let me close. That's a, that's a lot of application, but let me close this way with Paul's words. He says, the whole body joined and held together when each part is working and in these verses, we've seen the goal of maturity is Christ-likeness. We've seen that the purpose of maturity is protection. We've seen that the way of maturity is commitment. And here's the conviction that I think is underlying the whole text, is that you will not mature as a Christian without significant involvement in both ministry and life-on-life community in the local church. That's verse 16 in a nutshell. It's really the whole text in a nutshell. Now, some of you are in a place right now in your life where you're beginning to realize that you're just not going anywhere. You're not growing. You know what? Some, some of you are in decline and you've not been growing for a long time. And what's the problem? Problem is this. L- look up here. Here's the problem. Is that it's, it's not a knowledge issue. Like you don't need another sermon. You don't need more content you don't need another Bible study to kind of get it going again. You don't need another verse unpacked for you. That's good, that's helpful, but hear me, you're not gonna get any further spiritually until you start opening your life to other Christians and start using the gifts God has given you for the good of his church if you're always sort of taking things in as a consumer and never giving things away as a giver, eventually you'll stop growing and if that and that happens to all kinds of Christians and they start stagnating because they just consume 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 and you're not meant to consume consume consume, you're meant to give. And unless you give, you will stagnate. You'll get so fat on content that you won't do anything with it. You can't hold that much content in, you've got to give. And if you don't give, you're not reproducing, you're not moving, you're stagnating. So, so you must give, Christian, and, and, when, and when people start growing, what ha- stop growing, excuse me. when they stop growing, what happens is they start searching for something else. I've got to find another Bible study, I've got to find another seminar. I've got to go to the, this women's conference, this women's retreat. I've got to find a new church, maybe, something to fix the problem. But here's the thing: it's not an information issue. We have enough content to grow. We have to become productive members. We have to take the things God has given us and give them to others. We have to open our lives. But as long as we remain Sunday-by-Sunday Christians, isolated from other people, we stagnate, we falter, and we hurt ourselves. That's my big challenge to you this morning, okay? That you would feel kind of uncomfortable and awkward to just show up on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis and people know that about you. I'm just here once a Sunday, I want you to feel awkward about that, okay? Because that's not good and it's not healthy. Now, I'm speaking the truth and hopefully in love. And I'm challenging you in Jesus' name. Here's the thing. Do you want to walk worthy of God? Then get a conviction about the local church and your place in it. Say this, by God's grace, I'm going to open my life to other people. I'm going to be transparent and vulnerable and involved and helpful and useful. I'm going to begin shouldering the burdens of other people and I'm going to stop living for myself. Are you willing to say that? Are you willing to get there? And if you are, then hear me, you will flourish as a Christian. You will, you will flourish. You'll have a happy and joyful Christian life. And if you're not willing to do that, well, I just hope you won't make that decision. Let's pray. Father, we have all failed in this way. I have failed, certainly, as a pastor in this way. I've not opened myself to others. We have a tendency, a proclivity to hide and to not be involved. We're selfish. I'm very selfish with my time. We're very, we're just prone to this, Lord. But we don't want to be inside of us. There's an impulse that says that's right. What I'm hearing is right. That's what the word of God says. But there's a weakness still. So we pray that you would break through our weakness. And that you get a hold of our hearts. And you would say. And you would just help us to take the right steps. And to be the kind of people you've called us to be. So as we close. Pray that you would give us grace this week. To yes be humbled. Corrected by the text. But to be encouraged that you're speaking prophetically to us about how you want us to change and grow and that you give us the power to do what you've called us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.